0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members
1: from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno.
0: Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. A couple of quick reminders before we get started with this week's episode. Make sure you follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Hazard Ground and at Hazard Ground Podcast. And start to look for upcoming previews from me personally on my own personal social media accounts. At Mark Zinno, M A R K Z I N N O. I'll give you guys just a verbal preview from me each and every week on my Instagram story, and I'll even add them on Twitter for you guys as well. So follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Mark Zinno, M A R K Z I N N O. I uh, want to ask a favor for you guys. Do us a favor, send us an email. At producer at hazardground.com. We'd like to know what kind of sponsors you guys would like to see featured on the show. Uh, We're going to try to gain some more for you guys that benefits you. So if you get a chance, drop us a quick email. Just let us know what sort of sponsors you're looking for, and we'll see if we can help you guys out that way. You guys are so good with us, we want to return some of the favor again. That email, producer at hazardground.com, and we'll start to look for some sponsors for you guys. Reminder about our partnership with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon banner right there in the middle of the homepage. Do all your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend. We donate it right back to the charities that you see featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. Now, all that's out of the way. On to this week's episode. Joining us this week is another member of a story that we've told. Several times before, it is the Battle of Gar in Afghanistan in March of 2002, part of Operation Anaconda. And we've told this story from varying perspectives, but excited to get this one. He is now a retired E-8 Master Sergeant out of the U.S. Army. Uh, He was awarded the Silver Star for his actions on top of that mountaintop in Gar. He is Eric Stebner joining us on the Hazard Ground podcast. Eric, welcome. Thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: But as I said, uh, you know, and you don't know this, but I've told this several times in the podcast. The Battle of Takagar is the kind of the inspiration of this entire podcast because I've wondered for years why this isn't a widely known, popular story among the War on Terror. I mean, it is in military circles, especially Army people, are familiar with Operation Anaconda, the operation that you know this whole battle took place in, but. What happened on that mountaintop over the course of, let's say, 20 hours from start to finish uh, is really a true story of heroism and human spirit and determination and will and all those things. And uh, your story is a perspective we haven't had yet because we've told it from the mountaintop. We've told it from the command perspective. And now we actually get to see the other part of you guys climbing up the side of that mountain to help save your fellow Ranger buddies. But before we get to all of that, I'd like to know your personal story from the beginning and how you got into the military.
1: Uh, ever since I was younger, I wanted to, I guess, be in the army, call me, uh, close-minded, but I never thought anything other than being a soldier infantry, you know, that kind of soldier in the army was <clears throat> about the only thing I figured there was to do. You know, I know there's cooks, there's other things, but in my mindset, ever since I was little, you know, the ground pound and infantry guy, that was what I wanted to be. And when I was growing up, I had a One of my best friends, his brother was a ranger at 275 in about the 83 to 87 era. And so that was motivation for me. And pretty much ever since I was in the fifth grade, that was my whole goal and direction to achieve.
0: When you told your parents at such a young age that you wanted to do that, what did they say?
1: They didn't mind. My dad served in the military. He did two years. He was uh, in Camo and he got sent over to Korea. And did his two years, and I was asked him why he didn't do any more, and he said he could basically go back home to North Dakota and work on a farm and make more money than he could in the Army. So that was the route he chose, and that was to get out.
0: (laughs) So as you're working through high school and everything else, is this something your friends widely know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I grew up – where I grew up, a lot of people went in the Marine Corps. Everyone is Marine, 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 and I never swayed off, never you know, went down that route or that path, and, I mean, people knew it. That was what I was going to do and what I wanted to do.
0: And it was always Army? Was it always Ranger as well? Yes. All right. Uh, So you graduate high school and enlist the next day. How does it work?
1: Um, I took a little time off, actually. I was going to take a year off, but I was young and dumb and had to expedite my time to join the Army a little bit sooner. So I think I took about, well, about six months off. And then I enlisted. It would have been October my the year after i grad or the year i graduated october 94 i graduated in 94 so october 94 i went in and enlisted and then i left for the military on january 5th of 95
0: all right so you are headed to basic training do you know what you're getting into i mean was there any culture shock for you there
1: um no the only culture shock i did get was when i went to my enlistment recruiters to sign up and they basically told me I qualified for pretty much any job I wanted, asked me what I wanted, and I told them I wanted a Ranger contract. And they were kind of trying to be persuasive. They were like, are you sure you want that? Kept telling them, yes, yes. They looked, and believe it or not, there weren't any Ranger contracts. And at that point in time, you know, I'm at the map station that was, you know, supposed to sign up, and I was stumped. They're like, what do you want to do? And I had no idea and no thought of anything else I wanted to do, and so I threw out Airborne. Asked them if I could get an airborne contract. No airborne contracts whatsoever available. Um, And then they showed me an air assault video, told me I could be at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, 50 miles from Nashville. And they sold me on that. So I joined the Army as an 11 X-ray.
0: Wow. Um, Interesting. You know, a lot of kids at that point in time would have said, well, I don't want to do that or I'm not going to do it at all. I mean, you were still determined. Did Did you know that there was a way to eventually get to be a Ranger after the fact?
1: Uh, I figured I could probably get to it eventually, but I took a little bit of a roundabout way in doing it.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, the Army sends you around the block to get next door often, so uh, certainly not an uncommon occurrence. All right, so you get your your aerosol contract. You finish basic AIT. I mean, is all this stuff still a blur at this point in time, or are you just kind of anything sticking out to you?
1: No, when I joined, well, I got to basic training. You know, I was supposed to be at 11 X-ray. I think they had me assigned as 11 hotel But then that got changed because I got contacted by the old guard recruiter when I was there. Didn't know what it was, didn't have a clue what it was, but I saw the posters and the signs and everything they had, and you know, made it sound all interesting. And it was, you know, Army's ceremonial unit escort to the president. I was a little kid out of North Dakota. I was like, wow, that would be cool. And so I actually signed up for the old guard because they target you for height and weight and everything. And, you know, the old guard recruiter said he'd come back and talk to us at the end of basic training. Went through basic training, and I kind of soon realized I really didn't want to be in the old guard. Mm-hmm. sounds terrible, but so when he came to talk to me, I asked him if I could not continue down that path. And at that time, he's like, no, we spent money on your secret clearance, etc., etc., et cetera, et cetera. You're still on path to go to the old guard. And then they spoke to everyone in a room before we were leaving and, you know, asked how many kids – had rip contracts and didn't want the rip contracts. And almost the entire room raised their hand He went around and asked a few more questions. And he asked again, if there were any more questions, I raised my hand. And he's asked me and I was like, are there, is there any chance I can get one of their rip contracts? And he's like, no, why do you want to go to ranger school? And, you know, I told him I did. And he's like, look at me. The old guard sent me all this little did I know. Uh, he was someone I would run into later on in first ranger battalion, but, he actually went back and forth between the old guard and ranger regiment, and so I committed to the old guard. I did some time in the old guard before I reenlisted and reenlisted for a ranger contract and to go to first ranger battalion.
0: When you saw him years down the road, were you like pissed at him? You go, why don't you give me that damn ranger contract back then? No,
1: I bumped into him. He didn't even remember me. He, oh, you know, okay. he just Kind of laughed, and but I did. I have crossed paths multiple times since then. I mean, we do still cross paths. So. I give him grief about it, but he just laughs. laughs.
0: So, when do you actually get to Ranger School?
1: I went to Ranger School. I actually had two times in Ranger School: seven and eight, ninety-nine, and seven and eight, two thousand.
0: Okay. <laughs> at this point in time, you are still at Fort Campbell, or no? Like as far I know, you you go to Ranger School at Fort Benning, but I'm saying is your main duty station still at Fort Campbell?
1: No, I was actually assigned to. The old guard.
0: Okay, so did. were you in D.C.?
1: Yep. Yes, I oh, did. Oh wow! All okay. the stuff in Arlington Cemetery, did inaugurations, ceremonies
0: around D.C. Well, that's pretty. That pretty, was what I. That's pretty memorable to what, say the least, right?
1: I guess so. I went from one extreme to the other. I laugh at it.
0: <laughs> that is true. There's probably the furthest thing from gunfire in the old guard, and uh, uh, Ranger School is the exact opposite of that. All right. So when you graduate from Ranger School in 2000, where are you headed next?
1: I we, well – Because when I re-enlisted, I went down, I did airborne school, rip, at the time it was called rip, rope, and ranger school, all back-to-back straight through, and I got to Florida phase the first time, and I was a no-go, so I went back, and I cleared the old guard, and then I PCS to first ranger battalion, and I was there a little while, and they sent me back to ranger school after I was there, I think like five or six months, and I went to ranger school, so when I graduated... I went back to First Ranger Battalion.
0: So you're doing all this high-speed hua stuff uh, with First Ranger, Ra- First Ranger Battalion, and then all of a sudden, nine eleven happens. Where are you?
1: Uh, actually, I was in the shower when it kicked <laughs> off. And I, I didn't mean it,
0: but literally, like, but I, I okay.
1: Nah. <laughs> no, I was in the. I was. We were actually on our alert status. we were the supposed to be the battalion to spin up, go anywhere in the world in eighteen hours or less. So we were on our op alert status and literally i was in the shower i heard it on the radio started banging on the shower wall of course three of us rangers lived together my roommate finally came he's like what are you yelling about you know i was like turn on the tv you know world trade centers just got hit the pentagon hit he's like what are you talking about you know quick jumped out of the shower thought we were getting called up thought we were getting launched took off headed into work tried to go fast because i figured we'd be getting our call any minute and it took forever to get on post because they had the post lockdown. Sure, so yeah. I eventually, ended up parking and just ran on post. Got there, um, the guests found out we weren't gonna be going, and it wasn't till a little while later. Um, I had I got asked to do to certify an aircrew one evening. And it was, you know, later than we normally do it. I think the plane was supposed to land at like five or six o'clock at night. And we were supposed to certify them how to load our vehicles and how they were supposed to be ratchet strapped down. And went ahead and did it, was talking to the air crew when I was doing it. And it, it caught on then what was going on because they told me after they got certified, they were flying to Fort Benning and they were supposed to pick someone up. And they were continuing on from there. And what they were actually talking about was we certified them. They went and picked up 3rd Ranger Battalion and initially took 3rd Ranger Battalion into Afghanistan.
0: Were you kind of upset that you guys weren't the tip of the spear, so to speak, as the infantry often is?
1: Yes, because kind of, you know, you think, is it going to be one of those 30-day, 60-day battles? Is it going to be like, you know, Panama, Grenada, where it wasn't? an enduring period of time. So I kind of thought at first, I was like, wow, we're going to miss out. This is the one chance, the one thing that, you know, I think every Ranger desires and dreams about, and we're probably going to miss out on it. (laughs)
0: Little did we know. Um, (laughs) So when everything kicks off in December, or well, actually technically it was October of 2001 um, Mm -hmm. when everything kicked off, are you guys just in a full training mode at this point in time? Are you hearing anything?
1: Um, no, we're not. We're Everyone was kind of surprised because we were the op alert battalion and that they took someone that wasn't. So we didn't know. We thought maybe we'd still get called up. We'd still join them. Maybe there'd be something else. We didn't really know. But yeah, it was continue to train our full training cycle that we had scheduled to do.
0: So, Eric, when do you guys actually first hear about a deployment?
1: We start hearing about it a little before Christmas, if I remember right. I want to say it was like the 15th or the 18th of December, just shortly before Christmas. We were told we were going to have a couple of days to go. We weren't going to end up having Christmas. We'd be gone before Christmas. And so we started prepping and packing, and it kind of got goofy. I don't remember I know we loaded a plane two times to leave and for some reason we didn't go due to maintenance on the aircraft. It was a 24 hour slip. I think we had another 24 hour slip. It's kind of a joke when we were going, we're like, okay, we're going, but we're not going. How many times do we have to say goodbyes? You know, and it it slipped and it slipped, but we did end up getting Christmas at home. And I think we eventually took off on like December 27th because Twenty seventh or twenty eighth, somewhere around there, because we flew into Oman and Prep for a couple of days before we actually flew into Bagram and first night in Bagram, uh, at Bagram Airfield was New Year's Eve of two thousand and one going into two thousand two.
0: So Oman, not Kuwait, huh? Did that I mean in retrospect, does that surprise you?
1: Um, I think that was kind of the first pushes, the first movings of it. They didn't want to advertise a whole lot. I'm not sure, really yeah. sure why, but we went went through them on on that first trip. And the first trip over there, I mean, it was goofy. We'd fly, we'd land. We'd have to wait for air, airspace clearance, fly and land some more. So we had a few stops and bounds on the way over there, too. But gotcha. we finally got there.
0: All right, so you, you get into Kandahar uh, right in the beginning of 2002. Do you know what your mission is at this point in time? I mean, and kind of break down for me the conditions – because a lot of people who end up deploying post 2002 and 2003, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, especially in Iraq, you know, things get pretty cozy pretty quick because we knew we were digging in for a while as far as living conditions. But we hadn't had that mindset, especially in Afghanistan at that point in time. So what are the conditions like living wise?
1: Um, when we first got there, we had two two tents. They weren't like the small GP medium. It was kind of like two of them put together, I guess. <clears throat> we had... With attachments in the platoon, I think we had like 60 guys, so we were split up between the two tents. Middle of the winter, no heaters, zippers on the tents ripped out, torn out, you know, when it would snow. We'd have a two- or three-foot snow pile that would come in through the door every night. You know, we'd try to tie it up, zip tie it shut, but it never held up. We eventually, throughout the deployment, ended up getting uh, showers, but the showers were available once a week. And if we did get our window of time for showers, chances were the pipes were probably froze up or, you know, you weren't able to get a shower when it came down to it. Um,
0: so were split you split actually split. were you staying at, at, at the airfield or were you guys, you know, entrenched somewhere at, a, at, a, at an outpost? How What was it like?
1: We were the, actually like rollout tarmac was that they had on the airfield. There right. was a, a little gate to go there and a, a road out front and that turned into what's now Route Disney. Okay. And so we were maybe about a half mile from the airfield and just had triple-strand Constantina wire three rows deep around our compound. I think there was maybe a total of five tents there. The shower tent made the sixth one, and then the talk was a brick building that was there that we occupied. And then a little ways down the road, the 10th mountain had some, some, some guys there too. And I think all in all, There were like 170 people that occupied Bagram Airfield at that time. It was small.
0: (laughs) What sort of uh, engagements are you seeing while you were there for the first couple of days, weeks, month, whatever it is?
1: It was pretty laid back, though. I mean, kind of bummed, you know, here we were at war in a war zone. And, you know, we'd get spun up to do things here and there, little things, but they never ended up being much of anything. And, you know, we'd even get spun up. What was Route Disney? The locals still had access to that. They'd be riding their bikes down down those roads by the airfield. And a couple times we took off. I think I ended up hitting a guy in a bike one night because it was so dusty and driving with nods. My gunner was like, Sergeant Stepner, you just hit a guy. I was like, are you serious? Yeah, he looks all right. He got up and got back on his bike. I was <laughs> like, all right. He probably knows where we are. He'll go to talk. I can't really stop right now. So, yeah, uh, you know, the locals. Would stand there looking at us. It's crazy now, thinking how big Bagram is and what it actually was when we first got there.
0: Yeah, and again, I don't mean to laugh like in a callous nature, but sometimes that stuff just randomly happens. And thankfully, the guy's okay. (laughs) But um, those little moments of levity in combat sometimes sustain you through some some pretty dark days. So uh, at least you still chuckle about it now. All right, so yeah. when do you start to actually pick up operational tempo where you're conducting missions that are of, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, of value?
1: Basically, well, I had – I did have one thing they grabbed a couple of us to go do. We were attached to um, an organization that was kind of a special, special duty to me, and that was – I was there about 30 days. That was like kind of the first thing going on, but the rest of the tune when I got back still didn't do anything. A few little spin ups here and there for this or that. You know, an aircraft would go down or something like that or we'd stage somewhere. But really the first go time that we had was was on March three, four for Roberts Ridge.
0: And and the reason why I'm asking again for those just put some context to this, remember we're still chasing bin Laden at this point in time. You know, we still believe he's hidden somewhere in the mountains of Torabora and Uh, We don't know whether he's escaped or not. Uh, If you read up on this stuff, you know, towards the end of December 2001, we actually had him, um, knew where he was, had his location. And then long story short, he ended up sneaking out the back door due to the help of uh, um, some of the Pakistani folks who who got him out the door. But, you know, at this point, we don't know that. And uh, they're still chasing him down. So that's why I'm wondering how much of the operational tempo is there. And maybe it was there for, you know, special operators and things of that nature. But you guys had a pretty quiet time. So when do you start hearing the first words about Operation Anaconda?
1: Um, I think it was about a day or two before. And okay. again, you know, the platoon, the guys were all pretty disgruntled. You know, hey, we're here. Why aren't we getting to go do anything? Why aren't we getting to be part of it? You know.
0: And for those who don't or aren't familiar, you know, Operation Conda was a massive offensive set work by the by the powers that be in the u.s government not only 75th ranger measurement but uh 10th mountain i think 101st was involved i mean you know you're talking thousands of soldiers making an assault um in the mountains of afghanistan all at the same time over the course of what was supposed to be what i I think it was two weeks right
1: i think so yes
0: i think that was the original intent was that it was it was a two-week offensive that that the uh, u.s military had planned and so um, and, and as we've recounted several times in, on the podcast, you know, when you start setting forth plans for battle, they rarely ever go as planned. And so, um, things get to go haywire pretty quickly. Um, wh- what are you told about your part of Operation Anaconda and, and what you guys have to do, um, on, uh, on the, on the mountaintop of guard? or is that even involved until something goes wrong?
1: It wasn't even involved until something went wrong.
0: Okay. So what was the mission? For us Yes.
1: We didn't have one at that time. We were told we were standing by that if missions presented itself, you know, we would react or act upon them. That was the guidance we had, so it was kind of just a a waiting period again, you know. Were, a little were, disgruntled.
0: Were you officially like labeled a, a quick reaction force, a QRF?
1: Uh yes, we had been. I mean, yeah, we were the QRF for things that popped up. I'm sure there were other QRFs because we had counterparts in Kandahar that were also, I believe, on a QRF mindset also, you know, kind of splitting off areas or regions in Afghanistan.
0: So the morning of March 3rd, 2002, uh, kind of mm-hmm. take me through how that day begins for you.
1: Um. Well, the day was the day, our right. average. Wake up, do maintenance, PT, eat sleep you know there wasn't a whole lot of activity there wasn't a whole lot to do there and actually everyone had just started shutting down for the day i had just literally crawled into my sleeping bag zipped it up and i was going to go to sleep and maybe five or ten minutes later is when they came in and told us to get up it's time to get up something was happening we're finding out more as it went you know we didn't have a whole lot of information at that time but you know, we needed to get up and start getting ready.
0: Were you even aware that there was, you know, a, an offensive taking place at that point in time by another unit?
1: Uh, we knew that stuff was going on with Anaconda, but no, we didn't have any knowledge of, you know, the SEAL team going into being, you know, going into Roberts Ridge or Tucker Guard. Right.
0: Now, when that you say we, are you talking about guys at your level or did did your command team even know at that point, not even know at that point?
1: Um. Some of the command team knew. I mean, as far as Captain Self, if he knew, I don't know if he knew that a SEAL team was going in. Maybe he did because he did read up and hear on a lot of things, you know. And by the time it filtered down to us, it was worthwhile or not worthwhile, you know. But probably now I would say they would have had a QRF standing by if they were putting a team in like that for something. Now we would have been stood up. We would have been ready. We would have just been taking it on the fly like we
0: did. Sure. Sure. Uh Captain Self again, for those who aren't familiar who's talking about Nate Self, a former guest here on the Hazard Ground, um, was one of the Rangers on the top of the mountaintop for, you know, a period close to twenty hours when it was all said and done. We, he was actually in your chain of command, correct?
1: Correct. He's my PO.
0: Okay. So let's get through this whole thing. Um you, you're told to get up, something's happening, something's happening. At what point in time do you start to grasp the situation? Um
1: Kind of in a way we didn't, because there were a lot of times that we would get spun up to go do things. And, you know, a couple times we had rehearsals. We would do it just for as rehearsals. You know, they'd tell us, hey, there's something going on, spin up, spin up. We'd prep, get ready, load the vehicles. Okay, hey, we're just seeing how long it takes to get ready. Our standard needs to be 10 minutes, we're leaving the gate, you know. So we went through things like that, and then a couple things were, you know, an aircraft could go down or something like that. They'd spin us up. We'd launch. We'd go down to the airfield. Somebody else would get to it or there was another course of action for it. So we went through it a few times and that was kind of everybody's somewhat mindset at first. Hey, we're just getting stood up. We'll get stood back down again, you know, load the vehicles, get ready, load the vehicles, go down to the airfield. So we did, but we did start hearing some things that a guy fell off the helicopter We were going to go in and get them. Um, And they said it was down in by the Gardez area. And earlier when I said I had uh, a 30 day special duty, I was down in the Gardez area and it was warm. Honestly, when I first went there, they told me to go take food, water. You know, there wasn't a lot of supplies there. It was cold. So they said, take cold weather gear. So I took my cold weather boots and that's all I had. So when I, when I was there, All I had was a cold weather boots and it was too hot. So when we were launching for the QRF and they said it was in the Gardez area, I opted not to take my cold weather boots. I literally just took my my desert boots and that was what I went because I was like, well, if I'm chasing someone or running or doing something, I don't want to be running around in cold weather boots, especially if I don't need them after all. <laughs> but yeah. little did I know. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. And, and we'll get to the because, again, the top of a mountain, guys, there's usually snow on the top of mountains. So that comes into play later on. All right. So you're hearing that somebody fell out of a helicopter. Uh, at what point in time you, do, do rotors start turning and, and equipment starts moving and you're, you're going to get up and go?
1: Um, well, they started spinning and turning. We split up into two chocks, and it, it went back and forth. We had one helicopter. We had two We had one again. Okay, we have two. Chalk one's going to take off and fly forward. We sat there for probably five or ten minutes after them. And then, you know, it was time for us to go. We got spun up, and we took off, and we were going to link up with Chalk one. That's what we were told.
0: Let me ask you as far as splitting up Chalk one and Chalk two. And I only ask this because obviously – Chalk one took a bigger brunt of uh, the injuries and casualties. who made that decision or is that already pre planned? How does that work?
1: Um, it was split on loads for certain certain numbers on the aircraft. That's how it broke down basically. We were told due to the airlift, only certain number of people on the helicopters for the payload to, to be able to fly over there. So it was just numbers on the aircraft basically.
0: But it wasn't something where, you know, you were originally supposed to be on Chalk 1 and you ended up being pushed to Chalk 2 or anything like that?
1: No, we go down there and it, it was pretty much who was on Chalk 1 was Chalk 1 and Chalk 2 was Chalk 2.
0: Okay. Um, so Chalk 1... Ideally,
1: it would have been a together package, right. not a split package.
0: So, so when Chalk 1 takes off and you see them go, are you hearing anything? Is this all just seem fairly routine at this point? Nothing's out of the ordinary?
1: Uh, nothing was out of the ordinary. You know, they took off, they went, we were waiting for the call. The call came. We started spinning up rotors and took off also. What
0: happens next?
1: Um, we flew for a while. I know they were trying to get comms with Chalk 1. Weren't able to get comms with Chalk 1. Didn't really know what was going on. We were actually pushed to Gardez and went to Gardez and sat there for a while. Not exactly sure the whole extent of the period of time that we were there. But, you know, we pushed to Gardez. We sat at Gardez for a while. And then we got the call that we were going to fly in in, link up with
0: Shock 1. Did, did it seem weird that you were splitting up with the other chopper? Because typically, correct me if I'm wrong, they never fly solo. There's always a wingman, for lack of a better term. Usually, for the most part, yes. So none of that seemed weird, though, that you guys were split? Um,
1: we'd done a couple things where, you know, we loaded a 147 and took off. So we did do a few things. Prior to that, where we were somewhat split. But traditionally and ideally, it's usually, you know, the pair of two.
0: At least in pair, yeah. So, okay. Um, when do you first hear of Chalk 1's first, you know, interaction with contact and everything else?
1: Uh, when we were flying in, they announced that... From Gardez,
0: you mean, after we had already yep. landed there. So you had landed there and you were told to take off and link up with Chalk 1. Yep. Okay. So
1: we took off. We flew for a little while and you could tell we were kind of flying around like lording around, Like you know. That started being weird. Like, why aren't we just going in if we have a grid and we're going in somewhere to link up some? Why aren't we going in? You could tell that, you know, we'd kind of circle around and come back around again. And then the, we got word that the pilots were looking for somewhere to land. And then we, you know, we got word that it was going to be a hot LZ. When we were going in, it was hot. Chalk one. They did tell us that Chalk one had three casualties,
0: but when you hear that, did they say how Chalk one had three casualties? Do you know no, anything of the situation? So you're kind of blind going into this.
1: Yeah, completely blind. Didn't know what was going on when we were going into it. You know, all we heard was they had three casualties. Hot LZ. We were going in, and the pilots are looking for somewhere to
0: land. All right, and, and let me fill in the part of the Chalk one. They landed on the mountaintop, and as soon as they opened the back door of the chopper, they immediately start getting fired on. And so that's where the casualties were taken from, uh, and it starts this whole sort of next 20-hour cycle on top of that mountain as they were looking for the guy who fell out of the helicopter, Neil Roberts, who became the first Navy SEAL who was killed in action uh, in the war on terror. Um, And he is, you know, uh, the guy that they are looking for at the time. All right, keep going from there. So you hear that they're taking contact or they've taken casualties when you hear that there are casualties what's going through your mind
1: um for some reason i don't know why but i knew i i have some intuition which i found out later on i have a lot more but um i knew when we were going in and they said that i knew that one of one of my best friends was sergeant brad cross intuition told me that he was one of the casualties not for any specific reason not like he was a a low performer or anything like that just Intuition struck me, and i I knew at that point in time that that he was that he was one of them
0: now when you say casualty did you know it was k i a or just wounded?
1: KIA. They okay they did tell us it was three k
0: okay all right and I'm just so at this point, your intuition giving you the sinking feeling going in here, how are you collecting your thoughts?
1: um I guess the thought I had it was I was like, you know get there, do what you can. Do the best you can and, you know, make up for what they did, I guess. Not payback, but, you know, make something worthy of it. Have it be something with more of an
0: outcome, if that makes sense. I don't know. Sure. No, <laughs> I I, no, I understand. Listen, I mean, it, it gets to a point where it's either them or me, right? I mean, that's – that's. Yeah. The, the, binary, the binary function of combat is it's either them or me, and, and <laughs> I'd rather it be them than me. So uh, I, I get that point. So you're flying – and what happens next? Are you trying to land on the mountaintop as well?
1: Um, yeah, they did. The helicopter went in, kind of touched down, you know, lifted up, turned again. And, you know, my thing was, I was like, if this is a hot LZ, why are they playing around? Why aren't we flying in, you know, landing, going? And I didn't realize it till I came off the helicopter. And I think I was one of the first few people off the helicopter. I think I was the first guy off. But they basically just had the ramp touching and the 47 didn't even have the wheels on the ground so they did basically a ramp landing and let us off because they didn't even set the helicopter down because the snow was so deep because as soon as i came off the ramp i hit about waist deep snow oh my
0: god (laughs) and
1: you know you're supposed to move away from the aircraft push out start picking up security and i mean everyone is just kind of stuck jumping off and plugging in the snow you know and in your mind you're like this is a hot lz what the hell's going on this you know Everyone got off, and the helicopter flew away. And, I mean, we're up on a mountaintop stuck in waist-deep snow and could hear the wind blowing, the wind kicking up snow, you know.
0: How many of you are there?
1: Uh, There were 10 of us.
0: Okay. Where are you in relation to Captain Self and the rest of the guys who have been KIA?
1: We were on straight line on a map about 800 meters away, if you looked at, you know, a map distance-wise. Okay. Little did we know they were about 2,000 feet up in elevation.
0: Gotcha. (laughs) That's that's unreal. Um, And, and again, for those non-military, you know, the terrain in Afghanistan, what could could be a mile in in straight walk time could take three to four hours to traverse just because of how jagged and rugged and steep the terrain is in certain spots. So when you say 800 meters, you're talking maybe two-thirds of a mile. Like you know, distance-wise, straight line distance. But you're saying 2,000 feet up. How yes. st- when you say up, how steep of a grade are we talking?
1: Um, we had like 70, 75, 80 degree inclines at times. There were a couple times when we were going that you know, you'd kind of have to reach up and have the guy below you push you up to get you up over a lip. Because I was a point man going up on the the trek up the mountain, so I got to a couple points. You know, we were walking pushing through the snow a couple times. Tried to go around where there was, you know, less snow, but we had sporadic contact while we were going up. Also from one side, we'd kind of move over to the other side of a finger or, you know, the edge of the mountain, I guess. So people can understand. And then we'd get some more contact over there. So we'd kind of zigzag back and forth going up. And I was point, man, it really wasn't fun being point man in waist deep snow. So if I could, Find an easier route, I would try to look for an easier route. But there were times where you'd have to kind of climb up, clamber up to get to the little lip, you know, to go up and go over.
0: Um, And remind everybody, no cold weather gear for you at this point. Um, okay. When you get on the side of the mountaintop, yeah, you get to chuckle about it now. Um, I'm sure it was sucking the whole way through. But when when you get to the that, that where you are on the mountain, do you have any communication with Chalk One at all?
1: No, we didn't. And so actually we were.
0: How do you know what the hell is going? On? How do you orient yourself and know what the hell's going on?
1: Well, we knew that they were. We were in somewhat close proximity to them, and at that time, the fast movers were doing gun runs on the top of the mountain. And I remember when I okay. saw the first one, I looked up and I was like, "Are you freaking kidding me? That's where we're going." You know? Oh my
0: god! W- w- but so, like when you when you get the sense of that, and you start looking like directly straight above your head, and going, "I got to get up there." What's yep. the thought going through your mind?
1: It's going to suck. <laughs> it's going to suck, but, you know, we got to get there. It's where our shock is. It's where the other half of our our crew is. So that's where we're going. I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to get there. you got to get there.
0: You have any radio contact with anybody back at base to let them know where you are?
1: I didn't. as a te- As the team leader then, I didn't have – I basically – didn't have anything pushing i wasn't talking to a lot of people uh sergeant cannon was but what all he had i'm not sure okay and then there was a guy that flew in with us that was a test or part of the seal team and when we were walking we could see the the seal team breaking contact and coming down the hill and basically at that time he was with us he's like hey you've got to go over with us you've got to help the seals they have casualties they're ex you know and he kept kind of trying to tell all of a sudden and even came and told me that at one point and i basically looked at him i was like okay well we have half of a chalk on the mountaintop and they don't even have a secure perimeter or anything set up they're open to one whole side so that's our direction that's where we need to go we're going in to link up with them and at that time
0: what did they say to that
1: He walked off. He went over and he walked off to link up with them because, I mean, we had eyes on him. We basically could watch him walk off and link up with them as we were going up. So we knew he ended up linking up with them.
0: But you you had no intention of following the SEALs where they needed to go. You were going to where you needed to go. Yes. We
1: we at that time had more casualties and had a downed aircraft. We were sitting in a little bit worse off position than they were
0: yeah um okay uh, you start climbing at any point in time in your head do you start to think we're never going to get there this is this is untenable we can't we can't climb this thing
1: um no I mean slow progress is progress and it was slow progress
0: what else can you see going on around you I see you mentioned you're taking fire uh, are, do, do any of your guys climbing up the mountain get hit
1: no nobody did we got we were getting mortared going up the side of the mountain too there was sporadic mortar fire that was coming in and you know they were doing a good job bracketing the fires i felt and you know i figured a few more a few more gun runs they'd be pretty close and be bracketed in on us but then they they never continued to to fire mortar rounds on us, so I think we got a little lucky with that.
0: I mean, do you do you do you start to crap your pants in a sense? Well, they're landing 50 meters to our right. They're landing 50 meters to our left. How much longer before they start to you know get this thing right on target?
1: Yeah, it's kind of a a thought or you know piece you have in your head. And that was a thought. But did Did you
0: ever thought yeah. about changing course, even if it was more difficult?
1: It Wasn't really a way to change course. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm just either to, up or down.
0: Yeah. If I mean, I I,
1: went left or right, I would have went into their brackets. So the way I figured just keep on moving and, you know, if they can get bracketed in, they get bracketed in. But you can't really do much if you're getting mortared on a side of a mountain, you know, that much of an incline with that much snow. You're pretty much there to take it
0: for the for the listeners. Can you try to paint a little bit more of the picture of what it's like climbing? Um, how much gear do you have? You know, I mean, you guys aren't experienced mountain climbers by any sense. I mean, is the rock jagged? Do you have any foot grips? I mean, how are you doing all this?
1: I mean, it was really assorted. There were places where you'd kind of have to crawl. Um, there was a place where you had good foothold on rock somewhere. It was, you know, real loose, slippery, crumbly rock where you weren't getting traction from waist deep to ankle deep to no snow. I mean, it variated so much. Um we had about 80 pounds of gear on going up the mountain, came to be a point in time. They made a call that if we wanted to drop our plates to our body armor, our back plates, we could. Um, I didn't at that time. I don't know why I had something stupid in my head that I'd have to end up paying for the plate if I dropped it. So I so, didn't drop my plate.
0: So and- so let me get this straight, just so everybody's clear. You took out your <clears throat> Kevlar plate that stops an AK-47 round out of the back to to get what loosen up 6 more pounds is that what it is
1: yep that's what it came down to 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 lighten up the load for for the
0: climb up what, what did what'd you do with them you just left them on the mountaintop
1: they pretty much turned into the most expensive frisbees somebody'd ever throw. <laughs> we threw them down that <laughs> when they did go down they'd hit the rocks and and break up and wouldn't be worth wouldn't be worth anything so
0: Wow. Um, did it actually help anybody by removing the plate?
1: Uh, you get to a certain point once you're once you're kind of zapped or fatigued, you know, Yeah, right. I'm sure it helped out. But, you know, do you notice a lot? Does it help out that much? If you do take it out, drop it six pounds to six pounds. I mean, it does matter. It does add up. But, you know, I think by the time we got to the top, nobody nobody realized it was much easier with or without a plate.
0: All right, so 800 meters straight line distance, but 2,000 feet in elevation. Yep. How long does it take you to do this?
1: Um, it took us about an hour and a half to two hours to climb climb up that distance.
0: How long did it feel like it took you? Uh, quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are you are you looking at your watch ever going? You know how long this is taking? Are you, are you starting to feel like it's taking too long?
1: No, I didn't didn't. Look at a watch, didn't sit there and feel it was, you know, yeah, it felt like it was taking forever and it was taking too long. But, you know, I didn't grasp it on time. It wasn't something I was worried about. It was basically just put my head down and go, you know, we got to go, we got to go. And we'd take some, you know, hey, we need to take a break. We need to hold up. We need people to catch up, you know. And once we'd stop, it was just kind of like, all right, come on. Can we go? Can we go? Can we go? You know, because it was a sense of urgency to get up there.
0: All right, we finally get to the top of the mountain, uh, and everybody is there with you. What do you see? How do you get your bearings? What's going on?
1: We actually started getting close. We didn't completely do a link-up. We finally got eyes on Shock 1. It was Staff Sergeant DePauli and Specialist Macelli we could actually see like, on an outcropping. So we told them we had eyes on them. They tried looking for us. They couldn't see us. We were trying to do a link-up. Sergeant Cannon had comms with Sergeant Tappali at that time. and So you, you, know, you, know, had, you had
0: communications with Chalk 1? Yep.
1: Okay. That's about where we, my comms and everyone's comms were coming in, starting to at least have connectivity to talk. Um, so we were trying to tell them where we were uh, at the time. They couldn't see us. They couldn't locate us. And at the time, Sergeant Cannon started throwing up snow in the air. And when he did, I I don't know, it struck me odd. I was like, are you kidding me? You know, we're getting shot at while we're coming up here. We're trying not to stand out, but you're throwing snow up in the air to (laughs) try to reveal our position to them. And at the same time, I was pulling out a compass because if you've been in the military, you have a compass. You can shoot a back azimuth. So all I was trying to do is pull out a back azimuth to have them shoot an azimuth to where we were. But they ended up seeing us. Walked up to link up with them. Um, When we got up to them, they were still kind of on an outcropping up top. And down below, there was – you could see gear. There were some blankets. um, Looked odd. Looked possibly like someone would be hiding under the blankets or, you know, there was something under the blankets. Didn't know what it was. Moved up to clear the blankets and there were rucksacks there. It was American gear. And to me that struck me odd. I was like, What? Why are there rucksacks here? Why why is there gear here? And you know there was a helmet there. It had Fifi rode on the side of it. There was a little purple unicorn. I mean there were some things that stuck out odd, I guess. And so it just seemed weird, you know. Nobody really knew what was going on. We didn't know what was going on. Um moved up to link up with Chalk One. Finally met up with him. Uh it was odd. Just, you know, kind of like, hey, we're here. We got here. Whew, you know, wasn't time to sit down because the, there were still bunkers that weren't cleared yet. Still didn't have security around, you know. So after we did the walk, we got there, sat down, maybe got a minute or two breather. And I think that's when I was told I needed to push up, link up with Sergeant Walker, who was my roommate at the time. And we were going to assault the bunkers that were on the mountaintop. And it was just kind of like, holy cow, you know, we're zapped, we're smoked, we're tired. After that climb, we're supposed to go assault bunkers now. So we went, we set up behind one of the rocks where they had been for pretty much majority of the day, a lot of the time and came up with a plan that we were going to assault across, you know, kind of the style set up support by fire, have intermediate support by fire and start assaulting the cross. And, that was a game plan. And I remember as soon as I stood up and I took off, I think I moved the slowest I had ever moved in my entire life. I just could not get going. And typically if you'd assault a bunker or position or something like that, you'd bound, you know, you're up for three to five seconds, get down, get up, do it again. And there was no bounding. I mean, wouldn't have been a point to get up or get down. You would have got shot (laughs) either way for moving so slow or being in the same place. So, Basically, we just bled with fire, you know, assaulted across that way. Just kept hammering, hammering the bunkers and moving across.
0: Was it effective?
1: Um,
0: Yeah, it was.
1: I guess we we had extreme superiority of fires. So,
0: by the way, you you, (laughs) you, I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry to cut you off. But you you had mentioned about your your friend, uh, Sergeant Bradley Kroos. Do you ever physically identify him at any point?
1: Uh, yeah, I do. I do go back and because um, later on, I was the aid litter team to move the casualties. So out of the all the casualties that day, I think there were well, there were seven KIA and four wounded. Mm-hmm. I moved nine of the 11 casualties and he was one. So I did have have a brief moment, brief time, you know, I guess with him that day later on.
0: What was that like for you emotionally?
1: Uh, it was different, you know. You kind of... It was different for me, I guess, because I wasn't exactly there with him. You know, it's kind of like, hey, you know, why wasn't I with you? You beat me here. If I would have been here, would it have been different? Would anything be different? You know, kind of a, a thing like that, I guess. What, what really does go through someone's mind, you know, broken, sporadic like that, you know. It's, you know, it's not like you have a whole a lot of time to sit down and reflect either. I mean, we were still getting shot at then. So
0: take me through the next, you know, phase of what goes on. Uh, you clearing bunkers and what else is going on?
1: (laughs) When we went to clear bunkers, when we were assaulting the first bunker, I was one of the first guys that actually came across Robert's body. And, it was a little different when I saw him because I saw the the Vibram soles of his boots, but there were other bodies, I guess, on the on the battlefield that had Americanized clothing on because what they did is they went through the gear and everything that was up there and kind of piecemealed it out. There was a guy that had a down jacket on, you know, littered with bullet holes so there were feathers flipping, flopping all over, and you could tell it was an American jacket. But it's just weird seeing sporadic pieces of, I guess you call uniform on people not knowing who is or who is an American, you know, as you're going across.
0: Um, when you, you saw know, Robert's body, what was the condition of it? There's been a lot of speculation about whether he survived falling out of the helicopter and was killed. I and mean, what did you see?
1: I'll put it like this. I'm not even going to tap dance around. The picture that's painted of how Robert's body was mainly – to his family and to his family members is how I'd like it appeared to be told and they have in their mindset they have how they have accepted the situation I don't want anything said told or done different than what they have is what they've accepted
0: that's fair honest and fair Uh, I accept that thank you um okay so with that um, when you start to realize, do you start to realize the gravity of everything that's gone on? I mean, you know, uh, as you're coming across bodies and everything else.
1: Uh, a little bit. I mean, it's you, I, you know, you kind of expect some stuff. It doesn't really totally fully sink in, I guess. And then as we moved across and basically had the bunker secured, is when we found Chapman's body in a bunker. Then also, and that kind of. Okay. Threw people off because there was only supposed to be one American. Why there are two Americans there now? So that you know was odd at first. And it took a little time to figure out.
0: For those not understand the context, Chapman, Jason Chapman, uh, was an Air Force guy who was also sent in after. Neil Roberts, he was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor, um, and, and there is, you can look this online, it's all public information now, but there is, you know, kind of infrared cameras of everything he was doing on that mountaintop to, uh, to you know, hold the enemy at bay and kind of basically assaulting on positions all by himself um, to try and find Neil and, and keep him alive, and, and uh, you know, and, and so uh, he was eventually killed in action as well, and as I just mentioned, you know, awarded the Medal of Honor, but uh, when, when you're starting to see more of this is – I mean, do you link back up with Nate, uh, Captain Self, at any point in time and be like, D- dude, like what's – you know, are you trying to put all this together or you don't have time to?
1: Um, you could hear it. I mean, people were talking because Sergeant Cannon was like, hey, sir, we've got two American bodies up here. thought there's only supposed to be one. Why is there another American body up here? You know, you could hear pieces of that being called out like, I don't know across the objective or, you know, in the area where we were. There were a couple more places we had to go look at, so we moved down to clear a couple other positions. There was a dish cut one, you know, another area of interest that looked like it would be a position or, you know. So we kind of secured, I guess, what was to become our perimeter.
0: And, Is anybody at this point in time talking about exfilling and getting you guys off that mountaintop?
1: Um, I don't think it had started just yet inklings of it I mean there were you know it eventually came to me my position that point in that time you know I was the one
0: taking the call on the radio I don't really know when it did do you know Um, how long you've been on the mountaintop at this point in time no
1: huh I honestly I don't I could look back and read something and figure out a timeline with what you know was posted or whatever but I wasn't looking at time wasn't keeping track of time i really didn't care about time honestly you know it was what it was and do what you gotta do there was no reason for me to look at my watch because at that point in time time didn't really matter to me you know
0: no it's fair again it just you know some people take note of how long they've been up there in eight days oh it's only 20 minutes but it felt like five hours and some people have been up there for five hours and they say it all went by so fast you know it was it but anyway i was just curious if you had uh had taken note um all right, so kind of take me through what's next. I mean, you're starting to gather casualties as well. What else is going on? How much fire are you taking?
1: Um, well, you know, I got called to go help move casualties, move casualties from where they had them collected up to the top of the mountain where, you know, it was more secured instead of kind of on the face of the mountain and by the helicopter because, you know, we'd get sporadic fire. They'd keep shooting at the helicopter, spray rounds here, spray rounds there. Um, so I went down to move casualties and you know I walked up I was like hey I'm here to move the casualties and you know the medic that was there was kind of like okay move casualties you know and I'm like well who do you want move first is anyone priority you know how do you want to do this you know and he's like oh go take Doobie Doobie's over there so I walked over to he's like hey I'm Doobie sorry I'm a little overweight it's gonna be a little bit harder to carry me and you know I was he was strapped into Skidco I was like it doesn't matter you know we'll get you to the top of the mountain and Started carrying up the top of the mountain. We started receiving fire. Uh, That time, got down and kind of tried to get behind cover. And, you know, there was some time where firing was going on. Went back out to get Doobie again. Again, it happened. I think it happened two or three times. At one point, he looked up at me and he's like, hey, you know what? Forget about me. Just leave me here. You're going to get shot. And in my mind, I was like, you know, he's a guy strapped in the litter. He can't even move. He can't even get behind cover. He's the one that's worse off than I am. You know, so I was trying to be, you know, open-minded, keep his spirits high. So I was like, no, it's not. We'll be all right, be You ready? Come on, let's go. We'll get you to the top of the mountain. And eventually I got him up behind some rocks where there was cover. And that's when we had some more gun runs come in from some aircraft. And there were some munitions dropped, also from some aircraft, that helped a little bit silence some of the enemy fire. I mean, kind of all throughout the day, we always get sporadic fire, but it seemed after that last last couple bombs were dropped that the sporadic fire lessened. There wasn't as much, but you know, we'd still get it every now and then.
0: And was that any sort of relief for you?
1: Um, it was. you know, yeah, going out and getting casualties, and it seemed like whenever you know, the fire would die down, as soon as we'd go out and start moving the casualties, that's when they'd start firing, and you know, don't really call it fair, at one time they striped where the casualties were, that's where um, Jason Cunningham the medic was also hit and the other medic that was up there when we were moving casualties, and they were just kind of strafing where the casualties were that's when he got hit, if you want to Expand on who he was and whatever you can.
0: Jason Cunningham, to my knowledge, uh, was a National Guard medic, an Air Force guy, um, who did a, just an incredible job of keeping people alive, um, continually, you know, working on patients and moving from position to position to keep them alive. Um, and he he ended up he ends up surviving, correct or no? No, he did. not Okay, he took a he took a shot to the a wound to the abdomen, right? Is that what it was? Yes. Okay. Um, and so, uh, he, you know, essentially I think kept three or four people alive because of everything he did. If i if correct me if I'm wrong there.
1: Yep. And he was influential for actually bringing blood onto the battlefield, onto the battlefield to give blood immediately. He did carry blood with, which at that time, I guess was. Um, influential. It was a lead way to later on, you know, having blood more accessible for certain times or situations or with, you know, CSAR people going in to help rescue attempts, basically.
0: And, And for background, for people who don't know, most of the people who get killed on the battlefield, it's not the initial gunshot that kills them, it is the loss of blood that eventually kills them um, and they bleed out because there is no blood supply um, to replenish them. That's what ends up causing their death. It's not so much a gunshot per se um, that does it. Yes, there are gunshots that kill people instantly um, as gruesome as that sounds, but most of the deaths in the battlefield are failure to stop bleeding more necessarily than the actual wound itself. So um, it's, it's, you know, poignant that you bring that to light. Um, so with, Everything that's going on right now, what do you even know what time of day it is? No. uh uh-uh. uh I mean it
1: was it was in the afternoon. I could tell it was like late afternoon. It was starting to be later.
0: Well, cuz I know it's going to get dark eventually and and you're still not off the mountaintop yet. Correct. So
1: and that the point time when Cunningham was one of the casualties, he was he was litter urgent. That's where I know they started pushing to have us pulled off the mountaintop, you know, to come pick us up. But we were told at that time, you know, they didn't want to bring any more aircraft in, stand by. They'd let us know when we'd be exfilled. So it basically kind of turned into a waiting game
0: up and, there. And then. part of the challenge with, with not only was the enemy fire and it being a hot landing zone, but wasn't the altitude also an issue for a lot of the helicopters?
1: Uh, yes. Once you get up to that elevation, they yeah. have to tremendously lighten their loads. Or they, you know, they can't get the payload, the lift to get up there. But. Yeah, the elevation was extreme. Um, and even for us, I my nose was bleeding. I was coughing up blood just from trying to breathe so hard, you know, physically exertion, you know, I guess it tore things in my nose or, you know, wherever. It just was such a high altitude from trying to breathe so hard and there's no air to breathe.
0: Do you realize how exhausted you are at this point?
1: Um. No. I mean, I knew I was tired. I was I was tired. Um, I, I always joke about it. My legs, I always said my legs could take me anywhere. I wasn't a guy who went to a gym and tried to bulk up, and I'd tease all the big guys. I'm like, you can have your arms as big as you want, but at the end of the day, it's going to be your legs that carry you. And there were a lot of guys that day that realized, you know, being the real big, cool guy wasn't all that. We just had to get that much more weight around,
0: well, and, and just to bring it back, remember you said as this whole thing kicked off, you were about to go to sleep, like you had just gotten back in your rack and, and were ready to go pass yeah. out, so you hadn't had rest in quite some time yet,
1: no, huh, basically had a whole day, you know, when we were getting ready to go to bed, it was time to take off, went, and went for you know close to twenty hours
0: okay, um so as it's starting to get dark, and they're telling you you have to wait. Is there any semblance of them trying to do a night landing to get you out of there? Or was it as soon as it got dark, you guys were waiting until morning?
1: Um, They said maybe when it got dark, you know, they would assess the situation and see if we could be pulled off. There wasn't anything that was directly told.
0: Well, and the reason I bring that up for those who don't understand military, like we have the advantage at night because we have the equipment and the tools and the ability to do it, whereas the enemy doesn't. And typically most Afghan fighters when the sun went down, they called it a day, you know, it's, it's, it's a nine to five workday for those guys. So, um, there was a lot less contact with the enemy at night, uh, than there was during daylight hours. And so it made it advantageous to try to get you guys out of there at night. But clearly, as you said, that's, that wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. Do you start to lose any confidence, any faith, any, you know, you, are you getting drained at the fact that how much longer are they going to leave us on this mountaintop?
1: Um, it kind of started to be like that because you know, The sun started going away and you're like, wow, we're still here. You know, and we started thinking if we're going to be up here, how much longer, you know, how cold is it going to get tonight? We didn't really come prepped. We didn't come with anything but our quick kit. So, you know, went inside the helicopter. They were cutting insulation down to wrap on casualties at one point in time because I didn't have any snivel gear on. I had nothing. I had T-shirt socks and my desert, desert uniform and my desert boots.
0: You must have been so happy.
1: Well, I kept moving too, so it wasn't until I stopped
0: that you got I cold
1: down yeah. that it started getting cold, and at one point, my squad leader came by, and he's like, "Hey, Stebner, here you go. Here's a jacket." And I was like, "You know, I don't need it. Who gave it to me? I don't need it?" And he goes, "No, they wanted you to have the jacket." And I was like, "What? All right, I'll put the jacket on, and as soon as I put my first arm through and my hand came on, it was completely covered in blood. I was like, and I did. I looked back at him, I was like, "Really, they wanted me to have the jacket." he's like, just put it on, you know, and I was, I was like, well, you know, I'm not going to take a jacket from someone that needs it, but you know, as morbid as it sounds, that person wasn't needing the jacket. And, you know, in my mind it was like, all right, it's survival time. We don't know how long we're going to be here. I'm probably going to need the jacket, you know?
0: Wow. Um, Does any of that kind of, when you reflect back on it, you know, the, the, the more abundant nature of the whole thing, does it eat at you at all?
1: No. Uh uh-uh. uh. Um I, I don't know, it's some people things do, I guess. And I don't know why it does or doesn't with me. I guess I think some ways I just have ways of justifying things or how things are, you
0: know. And maybe people aren't picking up when you put your arm through and there was blood in it, it was the jacket of somebody who had been killed and it was their blood, obviously, correct? Yes. Yeah, okay. I just wanted to make sure people who couldn't really put the whole thing together, I, I filled in the context. Um, at any point in time, do you start to, you know, when you say you don't remember when you first came across Sardin Cross, you know, your best friend, you don't have time to emotionally take stock on what's going on. As night falls and things quiet down, do any of those emotions start to surface on you?
1: No, well, a little bit, because like during the day, you could see down in the valley, like where... And the kana was going on and they were fighting down there. You could see tracers going back and forth, you know, and then you can look across the mountains. And I said it at one point in time I was like, you know, what's so odd about being up here? You know what the oddest part about it is? It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And it was. But yet in a way, it was so ugly. Uh, it was it was weird, like being there, you know like that in that kind of situation.
0: You know, it's fine. I I had that same thought in my deployments to Iraq, you know, especially when the sun went down at night, you know, you'd have these beautiful sunsets and the palm trees that are sitting there and they're all silhouetted against the backdrop. And you look at this goes, you know, you you take a picture of this and it looks like freaking paradise. And and little do you know, you're in hell. I mean, it's just, it's a weird juxtaposition to put next to one another. Very, again, poignantly uh, pointed out by you. Um, So, Do you guys ever get sleep now? I mean, are you on some sort of – you guys stay awake, you guys stay asleep, or you just couldn't sleep at all, or what?
1: No, it was pretty much – I think it would have been turned into survival mode because it was getting cold. I mean, guys were buddying up together. I think I was spooning with somebody or laying real close to somebody. You know, it was cold out. It was getting cold. The wind was picking up. And if we would have spent the entire night up there, I think it would have been a very, very, very terrible night.
0: Um. (laughs) You know, you mentioned Jason Cunningham, who was, you know, needed to be ed- ed- medevaced immediately. Did any of these guys quietly expire on the mountain?
1: Um. Yep. Jason Cunningham did. He did. Ex- he did pass away that day on the mountaintop. And, you know, it was a call. Hey, we were a little urgent, you know, no longer a little urgent, you know, passed on that, that he had passed away.
0: Does that make anybody angry? Did it make you angry?
1: Uh Yeah, it made people upset. I mean, if you're sitting there, we, we felt we could have been exfilled if they would have came in. But, you know, turns to a point in time where you make a call. Do we want to lose another aircraft attempting it? Or is it better to wait? You know, if we go for one guy, that one guy trying to be picked up, do five more guys die? Kind of the same moral of the whole story when it started out with Neil Roberts. It was one guy, and off of the one guy, seven seven KIA eventually ended up happening that day.
0: Do, do is anybody visibly frustrated? Is anybody angry, yelling, or does everybody kind of understand the cost-benefit analysis of the whole thing?
1: I mean, people were frustrated. The, the medic started with friends. He, you could, you know, he was he was working on the casualties, trying to keep them alive. Um, yeah, he was frustrated, but I wasn't over by him with the casualty. I was, I wasn't around him, you know, but yeah, you could hear things, people talking, you know, we had small talk up there, but you know, we understood, but it was frustrating too.
0: Was it hard to watch Jason Cunningham lose his life?
1: Um, I wasn't really over in the area. Okay. I, I was, I was zapped, literally zapped physically. <laughs>
0: So ultimately, what happens? How do you end up off the mountaintop? Is there any, more enemy contact? What would get me to the next kind of phase of this whole thing?
1: Um, once it turned dark, no, you could hear them bringing the gunships back on station. And then they ended up bringing in um two forty sevens. When they brought in the first load, they some seals came off. They were supposed to help us load the casualties on our birds, when they came on. We ended up putting chalk one and. Walking wounded, I guess you would say. On the the first aircraft, it took off. The second one came in, and then we loaded all the the KIA's and the rest of Choc 2 on on the helicopter and took
0: off. Were you were you the one who loaded Sergeant Cross? Um, yes, I was. Was that did you do that on purpose? Was it, did it just happened that way? He was the one in front of you.
1: Um, both. You know, there was there's a. It sounds morbid, but kind of a a decent pile of bodies there that needed to be loaded, and we were the ones to load them. And you know, so is go get them, go get them, and kind of piled them up on the aircraft and loaded the aircraft.
0: When that aircraft departs off the mountain top, and you realize you're going back to you know relatively a safer spot than where you were, what are you thinking? What are your emotions?
1: Um, I don't know. I really. Kind of blank, I guess. You know, nothing was really superbly set in. You know, I was glad to be off the mountain. I knew that. I was glad it was over. I'm glad to be taking everyone home.
0: When does it all hit you?
1: It all probably hit me when we had an Iridium phone and they passed it around and gave us all 10 minutes to to call home. And the first call I made was to Sergeant Cross's mother.
0: And I think that's when it hit me. What did you say yeah. to her?
1: I uh, said, "Hey, Sheila, um, I don't know what to say to you. All I want to say is I'm sorry." You know, and that was that's basically all we got out <laughs> to each other. She was she was pretty pretty rough because she had just just been notified that not that much long before that that you know.
0: Okay, so she had already been notified by the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. That that Brad yeah. had been killed in action. Okay. And so you yeah. didn't.
1: And she she actually that night, um, the would have been the evening of March 4th. So about 12 hours later, she was notified. Um, she said she went in and laid down and was going to bed. And she could hear the TV in the living room. And they were talking about a special operations helicopter that had gone down. And she said when she was laying in bed, she had strong intuition and a strong feeling. And that's when she was told that someone knocked on the door and she goes, I knew right away. I knew immediately what it was. And she got up and went to the door and it was the military. To inform her of her son's death.
0: I mean, I get it's been a long time for you and, and obviously you've had to go through a gown of emotions, but you know, when you say it matter of factly, um, are, are are you emotionally closed off to the whole thing this day? How do you deal with it all? I mean, it's your best friend and, you know, you spoke to their mother and, and, and everything else. I mean, how do you, you know, deal with all this emotionally? I
1: don't know, honestly. Um, I don't know. And I don't know, didn't know, had a thought, you know, I've dealt with everything up to this point, I guess everything, even I've had, nine deployments after that one. Multiple deployments was first Ranger Battalion. And when I got out of the military I did. I didn't get scratched for PTSD. I don't have TBI. And I did. I told him though. I was like, here's one thing I don't know. What happens thirty years from now if this affects me. You know? Is is this stuff up to this point logged? You know? And it would have been the brigade surgeon at the time. He's like, hey, I'm gonna have you go talk to a counselor. Went in, talked to the counselor, same thing, you know. He's like, I don't know why you don't have PTSD. I don't know how you don't. However you've dealt with it, however you've worked it, is working for you. He goes, it might have been by how you were raised, how your parents raised you, how you helped others deal with their problems. And, you know, I can't honestly say if you do or if you don't. But he goes, I will say you should. And they sent me to the post, psychologist sat down and talked to her, same thing, went through it. She's like, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how you deal with it. I don't know how you, you know, make it work, but you should, but I can't assess you with it, you know? And I am like, okay. So honestly, how or why or what, I don't know.
0: (laughs) Are you afraid it's all going to come rushing back one day?
1: No, I don't think so. I'm, you know, just maybe, maybe when I'm a little older in life, And I sit down and I reflect and I don't move as much. Maybe some things will come back, but, you know, try to try to do what I can, make the best of what I can. Um, I have a son, he's named after my best friend, Bradley. So, you know, however you can do little things to make the best of what things were, um, you know, you do that short while, or it was about 10 years after my friend's death, um, I was contacted by Kroos' mother, Sergeant Kroos' mother, and she said it was time. He had an 81 Corvette. I'm a car guy by, you know, I love cars. I do things with cars. He had an 81 Corvette. She wanted me to, she said she had to sell the car. She wanted to keep it in the family. She has partially adopted me in her her way of saying it. um, And wanted to keep the car in the family, so asked me if I wanted to buy his car. I did. I bought his car and um, over time, restored the car. Right when the car was first done, I had a friend that helped me bring the car back to life and get the car on the road. And over the past seven years, it influenced me to start up a nonprofit organization called Forever Rip. And it's basically um, taking stories of those killed in action, wounded in action that have a classic unrestored muscle car or a car of some sort that you know either need them to be handicap accessible or if someone say a father was killed and his son you know 10 years later still has his car i grab the car and redo the car so the dreams are fulfilled for those that aren't able to fulfill their own dreams and their stories continue on and live on and it's a, uh, it's kind of like pimp my ride in a way, but right. it's not along that mindset. It's on on more of a, a heartfelt mindset, I guess that tells stories of heroic actions or events.
0: How often does Brad, Jason, anybody else on that mountaintop pop into your head?
1: A lot, a lot. I well, Brad, I was really cl- cl- uh, close with Brad. I'd spend time. He was from Jacksonville, Florida, so from Savannah to Jacksonville it was about two hours. You know, I'd spend Thanksgiving's down there with his family. He actually went home on leave with me to North Dakota, met my family. So he he pops into my head quite a bit, you know. Try to do something, try to make something worthwhile of it. So that's kinda of the whole intent behind the Forever Rip nonprofit organization that I have also.
0: Did any of your future deployments challenge you as much as this one did? Yeah. <laughs> More so? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean,
1: I wouldn't I, say for as long as the duration of time, but yes, I had had many other challenging moments and instances on on deployments.
0: When you when you look back, were you much more prepared to deal with casualties in future deployments because of what happened on your first?
1: Yes. And I'd say things would come out in training or even while deployed, you know, if guys were doing things, guys weren't doing things. Yes, I'd be quick to highlight it, mention it, and make note of it.
0: I, 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 no, I, I guess what I'm what I'm asking here, I mean, did you sort of – Go emotionally numb to the idea of casualties in war. Did any did any of the other ones hit you emotionally hard or anything like that?
1: I personally, for the next nine deployments, never had another casualty.
0: Really? Hmm.
1: Wow. And actually, one weird thing with First Ranger Battalion from when that happened in two thousand and two. First Ranger Battalion never had another casualty until
0: 2009. Really? Mhm. Wow. Um so when you think back to Tacagar on that mountaintop, anything you'd do differently? No. Other than, you know, wear your snivel gear?
1: <laughs> Probably some snivel gear. Yes. But, you know, once you got wet, you would have I would have been wet. Once you're you're wet, you're wet. Even if they're cold weather boots, I mean, you get them wet enough, you'll be cold enough too. You know, <clears throat> you just hold more water.
0: Any resulting physical injuries from you?
1: No, I had uh, frostbite, a mild case of frostbite after that. But so that's it. My feet will get a little colder faster than others, I think. But nope, no no injuries, no no scrapes, nicks bullet holes still
0: don't <laughs> any any desire to uh, go back to the cold weather of north dakota as a uh, homage to the mountaintop or are you like strictly a warm weather guy now
1: um i can do the cold i don't really care to as much and yeah i used to be more adapted to it but i go back home and visit for holidays and stuff now and i mean you, i'll feel the cold a little bit more but i think just naturally older the older you get you do too so how, I don't have any plan or intend to.
0: Right. How often do you stay in touch with the guys from that deployment?
1: Um, we sporadically talk. I mean, you you touch out, you reach out with people how you can. But, I mean, it's not like a weekly, monthly, you try to call them every time. You know, a few years ago, we did a 15-year reunion where we brought about 110 people together for it. And, you know, at that time, it was our 15 year and everyone's like, oh, this was so good. We need to do this yearly. I was like, you want to set it up? It was a pain to set up. It was hard enough to do for this. I'm not going to do it yearly. You can look forward to a 20 year reunion. So in three years, I'll do a 20 year. And then I don't know. We'll see what happens there.
0: Uh, you spent 20 years in the military. Yes. Any, any regrets?
1: None whatsoever. I'd do it again every day if I could. But I did not want to do past 20 years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Why?
1: That just it was my time. Everybody asked. I'm like, I gave my time up for, for 20 years. You know, you couldn't come, go, be, and do what you wanted to do. You were told what you were doing for 20 years, how, where, and when. So I was done with it. I wanted, wanted my time. wanted to, I guess, try to live and enjoy life for a
0: while. What else are you doing with your time now?
1: Um, well, right after I retired, I didn't do a whole lot. I worked for uh, a corporation called LKQ for about a year and a half. Then I ended up being the army's program manager for precision effects for, um, basically sniper equipment in and out of the army. It was, uh, last September, the squad designated marksman rifle got fielded to the army. I was the one that wrote the requirement and document for that. Oh, wow. And then since then I've, migrated over to more of a mobility world. And I work for flyer defense now and they have the GMV 1.1. It's the SOCOM vehicle programmer record. And if you saw in army times, the army airborne units are getting a lightweight mobility vehicle for the um, airborne divisions. That's our vehicle. Also the, they call that one, the AGMV, the army's ground mobility vehicle. And it's, it's interesting. It's a fun vehicle. Um, a lot of good work experiences, and everybody says if you can find a job that you love, you're doing well. And I literally found a job that I love, and I'm very, very happy doing it.
0: When you hear the words tacker gar or anaconda, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Mm,
1: it's not like a real surge of anything. I mean, I know what it is. I know it was there. Um, doesn't nothing really like strikes me, or you know, catches me off.
0: Well, Eric, I mean, you know, again, uh, it's – for lack of a better term, you're very monotone about it. And if that's what works for you on a daily basis to get through it – and I don't say that as a pejorative. Trust me, I just – you know, a, a lot of times when we get to this level of depth about the stuff that guys have gone through and what they've seen, it, it, it you know, it, you can't help but get a little bit emotional about it. And um, not that you necessarily aren't in your own way. Uh, I just, you know, again – you seem to have a very level head and a matter of fact nature about this whole thing. And, and if that serves you well, then certainly I'm happy for you. Um, certainly, you know, an amazing career, uh, you know, 10 deployments. It's just, you know, how do you even put that into words in anything other than to say thank you, you know, for everything that you've done. But uh, I know the spirit of those guys, including Bradley is is still alive and with you every day. And we thank you for keeping that alive and certainly, uh, you know, hell of a career and, and God bless you, man. Thank you. Eric Stenner, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Headlines and hot takes, they have their place. But at our podcast, ESPN Daily, we don't just skim the surface of sports. Dude, I mean, this clearly transcends blood feuds, (laughs) rivalries, sports. This is something far, far deeper than that. I'm your host, Pablo Torre, and every day we try to dive into the stories behind the athletes. The picture of him in the dugout afterwards just looked like a guy who'd had his heart ripped out. Listen to ESPN Daily wherever you get your podcasts.